And welcome back. Dana Merriam with us here, and we'll take your calls as we talk about reincarnation. It is truly remarkable. What does the Catholic Church think about reincarnation, Dina? Well, I told you about a Christian theologian who called me, uh, and we had that conversation. Uh, And then a few months later, I got a call from a Catholic priest that I've been working with in my interfaith work. And um, we spoke, and he said he was fascinated. This is my first book, My Journey Through Time. He said that he was fascinated and that it doesn't conflict with his theology. So I found that very interesting that he said, with, you know, within his theology. So it's not that, you know, we die, we go to heaven, and we stay there eternally. We die, we go to heaven, and we stay there for a while. We go to heaven or someplace else, <laughs> into another dimension, and we stay there for a while. It may seem like eternity, but, you know, maybe, what, 50 years, whatever, and then we come back. And as, as you and I talked about, it's a constant process of evolution, of moving into a higher and higher state of consciousness, so that we become an, a, a, a heavenly figure, a celestial figure, mm-hmm. where we've worked through all our earthly desires, and we can remain in that state, helping others. We become one of the helpers. So um, I don't think it, it contradicts with, uh, of course, you know, if you're talking about official, uh, the official church policy, Yes, they, they may have a different view, but uh, the, the Christian leaders that I've spoken to um, have no problem. As a matter of fact, many say that reincarnation was accepted until a certain point when the Church thought, well, you know, it's much better to tell people they only got one shot. They'll, they'll behave much better if you say, you know, one shot, you're good or bad, heaven or hell. And so that came into the picture. Uh, but the earlier years uh, after Jesus... And, of course, there are mentions in the Bible of reincarnation where it said that, um, it says that Jesus had been, Jesus had been um, uh, Elias uh, and, and that uh, John the Baptist had been Elijah. So now, there are references in the Bible to, to uh, previous birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. We've been talking about three of your past lives, but how many do you think you've had? Oh, <laughs> hundreds? Really? That many? Well, if you go back, as we said, to the you know early tribal communities, where you're just part of a uh, of a tribal group without much a sense of uh, ego identification, well, that was a, a a much 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 earlier sense of uh, uh, version of myself, and then gradually over lifetimes you you develop a, a sense of individuation and an ness and ego consciousness, and then there's a lot of learning that takes place. Um, I remember about 20, but I remember lives that have been significant, where important lessons were given, uh, sort of turning points in my own growth. And I'm sure that there were many lives that I don't remember that were just ordinary lives with nothing significant taking place. Let's go to the phones. Let's start with Jason in Olympia, Washington. Welcome to the program. Hi, Jason. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. And, uh, Ina, thank you so much for this uh, wisdom that you bring forth to the show. Um, I'll keep it short so the other callers can uh, get their info in. I'm a search and rescue volunteer, and I just got off a active mission tonight, and I'm calling in to ask, uh, why am I drawn to finding missing people? And it feels so natural for me when I go up to find 
the missing and I'm drawn to it. And I'm just curious if, if you've ever heard of anybody else with the question of past lives that could have occurred to make this attraction of this occupation happen. Um, I, I really feel drawn to finding the missing and it's just something that just comes natural. Uh, I've been doing it for seven years now and it's just something I'll, I'll do till the day that I die and I don't get paid for it. Uh, we don't get paid for it. It's just something that we just go and do. So it just is something that is just so, um, so passionate for me. And I'm just curious if you've heard of other occupations or, or instances of that nature that makes something like that so fluid for us. Well, absolutely. And it could be that at some time in your past, you were missing and somebody found you. That's a good you point. Were enormously grateful that you were found and that that person uh, was able to bring you back and help you. And so that, that, that memory in your state in your subconscious that you, um, that gratitude uh, and knowing what it means to be a missing person and to be found. And so you're sort of repaying that by finding other missing people and helping them. And it's not something you're paid for doing, so why are you doing it? It's not your, your job, it's not what you depend on for your livelihood, but you're driven to do that out of gratitude. And it could be it's gratitude because you've had that experience somewhere in your past. And often that's a case. Things we made in our subconscious. We have an experience. I mean, why people do peace work? Well, maybe they were in a conflict area at some point in their past, and there was somebody that they encountered who were trying to do peace work, and they were so grateful for that help. And so, you know, that remained, that gratitude remained in their, in their subconscious, causing them to, do, to repay it back. In other words, we give back. What we've been given, we give back. And I think that's a law of life, that, that the, the, the kindness that's been shown to us, in some way we give it back to others. Um, and that's sort of like the law of return. And so that's wonderful that you're able to help people that way. And some the people that you're helping, that you're finding, at some point in the future, they may be finding other people who are missing. So that's the way the universe works. Dina, do you find that if somebody drowned in a past life that they're afraid of water in this life? Absolutely. Yes. I've, I've, I've had pe have people tell me that, people who are afraid of water, saying, I know I drowned. You know, they won't go on a boat. Um, they don't like to swim. They just stay away from the water. And they've said to me, I, you know, I must have drowned in my past life because I have this fear. And I think if you have a phobia of fear, uh, that comes from somewhere else. I mean, that comes from an experience that you've had in the past. This book that I told you, my, my friend who is a Christian theologian, when he recommended these books to me, many, many of the stories they told were of psychologists who were dealing with people with phobias. And the only way these people could overcome their phobias would be go into a hypnotic state where they recalled their past, where they had suffered from something, from a drowning or in a conflict area, whatever it was, um, that created this subconscious fear in them that they consciously, rationally, they couldn't explain and they couldn't overcome until they went back into the past. Let's go to Eileen in Minneapolis on the wildcard line. Hello, Irene. Oh, no, it's Eileen. Eileen, okay. 
And I was going to say that um, sometimes it's sort of an unconscious thing. I know that you have a connection to a past life because when I was a child, I was like eight years old, I was getting a new pair of shoes for school, and there was this pair of shoes, and I saw them, and just I had to have them. They had square toes, and they had a T-strap, and I said to my dad, I have to have these shoes. And I, I had never gotten that excited about shoes, and it wasn't until I became an adult and I was at college and studying um, English history in the 17th century that um, all this started to make sense to me, and I had this strong connection to King Charles I, and I've, I've actually worn a medallion of him for the rest of my life now. I've, I've, and, but that's the kind of shoes they wore. <laughs> I mean, they look just like 17th century shoes. So I was going to just say sometimes we're attracted to certain things through our lives and we're not really understanding why, and then eventually maybe you do understand why. I think that's that's a, that's a, a, a common experience that people don't even think about. You know, they're attracted to something without asking why. Um, but but you, you, that was a wonderful story, that the shoes, because that's a minor thing you're attracted to a pair of shoes. But the shoes were different from ordinary shoes we wear today, and you found them in the past, which means that there's some unconscious memory of that life in 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 the um, in in uh, an earlier time, earlier century. And uh, I had that experience my, when my memories were first awakening. It was really it was when I bought my house, and there was something about this house that kept reminding me of another house. And I began to have dreams of that other house. It was always the same house. And I realized it was a child, house of my childhood and my past birth that I was forced to leave because uh, we had to leave Russia. But um, I kept having this dream. And then when my memories returned, the dream stopped. And so I think many of us get indications which we overlook. You know, we're so busy with our current life. But these are little signs, little signs that we've been here before, not the first time around. Dina, do you look into the future? Well, it's funny you say that. I am, I'm writing a book now about the future, 200 years in the future. Um, and I can see my own future because I see the things that I've not been able to fulfill in my life, that I, would, that I have, still have aspirations, and that I won't be able to fulfill. So I see where I'm going, what my next step in my own evolution is. But I'm, I'm sort of I, – I see a – more positive future, and when I think of all the dystopian books out there, dystopian futures that people are writing about, and I say to myself, you know, why are we creating this dystopian future for the human race? You know, we should come together and create a better future. And so I think that there there will be, you know, disruptions because of climate change, climate instability, and various factors. But I see a brighter future 200 years from now. So, you know, when we come back, I think things will be better than they are now. <laughs> well, that's good. That, that's, that, that's indeed good. What about moles and things on your body that you have today? Does that represent something that happened to you in the past? I, I mean, I think that your, your physical appearance is somehow related. I don't know about the specifics specifics about moles, but I think your physical appearance suited what you needed to do. You know, um, you know, people are born, some are beautiful, some are okay, and some people have 
have a, a lot of uh, issues, you know, they're not happy with the way they look. But we should know that we have all been very beautiful at one time. We've all been very rich at one time. You know, we've all had beautiful relationships at one time or will in the future. I mean, at, in, in our long journey, we get to experience it all, having a beautiful body, a healthy body. Uh, and in each life, you get something different. Uh, and so when I realized that, um, I thought to myself, well, you know, I didn't get the perfect marriage. I got divorced after 12 years of marriage and didn't remarry. But I know that I've had that in the past. And so it took away the need for it in this life. You know, and, and um, I, I think it's it's learning to be content with what you have, knowing that at some point you get everything that you need and you want. Let's go to Brendan in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brendan. Thank you, George and Dina. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, the Bitcoin mining taking electricity is real. Kudos to that caller. Uh, Texas sells electricity to Colorado. That was earlier in the night, Dina. But uh, I don't know if this is past or future. I had a dream whenever I was a little kid that I it was a massive ship floating on the ocean, and it had these stabilizers on either side, like outriggers to help with the storms or waves. And it wasn't until I got older that I understood the engineering aspects of having all these ships tied together in a long line that made like a floating city that we were all living on. And it didn't really seem optimal. It was kind of desperate, but we were making do with what we had. And it was like the oceans had risen and the land wasn't very hospitable. And there was these giant storms, Uh, but also, whenever I was a little kid, that was like in a dream state. But whenever I was a little kid, uh, and also now as an adult, similar to you were saying, as a waking state, as I'm like at work, and whenever I was at school, I would have these flashes of like a World War II life, uh, a lot of artillery and machine guns. And I've had these revelations, and sometimes it just continues to go. Uh, but I think the ETs work with some people to help them come back. Uh, I think that I might have come back here to help fight for peace. I know that kind of sounds paradoxical, but this time I, I'm not going to go down the violent route. <laughs> but I think that last time uh, we, I had to protect women and children, and I was wondering uh, your time in conflict zones, if you had any opinion or lessons on how violence impacts the soul either in being a victim or enacting violence on others. And indigenous cultures use war paint to protect their soul from being affected by the actions and sights in combat, especially in defending each other. Uh, so I, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Well, it seems to me that, you know, I think many of us lived through World War II, and um, I, I think that the the scars of that are not fully healed, and there's a lot of unfinished karma resulting from from that time you know the middle east situation the situation in ukraine and and russia it's it's still some of those emotions are still playing out and so it sounds like that was those those images that came into your mind were a past life recall the images of the boat uh, could have been of a much much earlier time i mean there was um there were other times of climate change when the glaciers melted um, thousands of years ago, <clears throat> the oceans rose 400 feet, and they say that that's when Atlantis sank. And so there were a lot of refugees uh, going, going, you know, escaping that. 
So it, it sounds like, you know, I think in the earlier part of one's life, in the first few decades of life, a lot of the images one sees from the past. As you get older and reach the latter stage of life, you begin seeing the future <clears throat> because you've worked through a lot of the things that you've come to work through, and you're setting the blueprint for your future. You're setting the foundation for the future. So, you know, maybe because you were in a you were lived through World War II, and maybe you were defending uh, women and children, and that led to your desire for for to be a peacemaker which is really important. I mean, even those of us who are sitting at home far away from areas of conflict, you can still do a lot just by sending out peaceful vibrations to those areas. We've got to resolve this karma that's been with us uh, that led to World War II and that's still unresolved. And, and, and I think all of us have a part to play in that, even those of us who are far away. Um, just by, you know, if you have a spiritual practice, whether it's prayer or meditation or just sitting quietly, just sending, uh, that's how you become a peacemaker. Even if you can't actually sit in a circle with people, you can send them vibrations of healing because a lot of healing needs to take place, so much healing. I mean, there's so much suffering uh, in these conflict areas now that you just wonder, you know, I mean, so much, you know, we all... We need a lot of peacemakers, and we all have to become that. What about reincarnation from other planets? Is that doable? People have asked me that, and um, people have asked me about reincarnation from other planets, and I'm, I'm sure that that exists. I don't have a memory of another planet, but I know people who do. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Catholic um, priest that I was mentioning earlier uh, has a fascination with extraterrestrial life, and he feels that he he lived on another planet. Um, and I think, you know, I think science is at a breakthrough in many levels. I think it's going to penetrate the, this understanding of death, create a new understanding that we move into another dimension, that we live in a multidimensional universe. I think they're going to also accept that there's life on many planets, and I think, you know, if you look into the future, <clears throat> there's a diminishment of the human population. It's, I mean, the, the, the demographers already know this. And I see as I look 200 years ahead, human population will be smaller. And some of it is, is uh, people having uh, fewer children. I mean, it's already happening in China, Korea, and Japan. The couples choosing not to have children or just to have one child. Uh, fertility is way down because of environmental factors. Uh, and then there are the natural things, and, you know, there will be some climate upheavals. So, and I think that will be much better for the Earth to have a smaller human population. Indeed. Dina, we're going to take a quick break and come back and take final calls in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back. Dina Merriam with us, George Norrie with us. Dina, what do you think is the most compelling aspect of your new book, To Dance with the Dakinas? Well, I think... Um, seeing how one life affects the next, um, I go through three different lives, and it shows how uh, relationships that were not fulfilled in one life gets fulfilled in the next life. So I think seeing the connection, knowing that nothing is arbitrary, that it's all um, interconnected, uh, I think that's, to me, that's the most interesting uh, aspect. Well, it is dramatic, isn't it? Yeah. 
Now, what what techniques can you give people to do some meditation to try to pick up their own past lives? I think I think paying attention to your dreams, paying attention to, uh, like one woman earlier said, it was a shoe, a type of shoe that she was so drawn to. Uh, these are little clues, uh, and I think if you have children listening to things that they say when they're young, can give you uh, hints about where they've come from. Which, which can be helpful in helping them determine um, their current life and, and what, 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 what they've come into life to do. We want to be guides for our children. So I think a lot of these are clues. And, and I think if we look as we get older and we look at our current life and see things that we would like to do, I often say to friends, okay, so what would you be able to do in this life that you would like to do in the future? And everybody's got a, an answer to that. <laughs> everybody, you know, because we can't accomplish everything in the short lifespan that we have. So everybody's got an answer to that. If somebody were a serial killer in this life, what were they in a past life, for crying out loud? Well, they might have been, they, yeah, exactly. Um, that I think about that a lot. Uh, uh, I think about that a lot. Um, could they have been killed and, and filled with rage and anger? Um, I, I mean, until you can see the whole picture, you really can't understand what drives people. You know, were they mistreated, you know, very badly treated, abandoned, um, uh, you know, not given any love, uh, didn't experience. I mean, clearly there's something like that, either in this life or their previous birth, where they were deprived of love and, and um, felt themselves a victim and just were filled with anger toward the world. Let's go to final calls. Let's go to Lisa in Knoxville, Tennessee. First time caller. Hi, Elisa. Hi, George. How are you? Great to have you with us. Go ahead. Yeah, awesome. First of all, I want to say thank you guys. I love you guys' perspective. It's awesome. It's nice to know that there's people out there that have the same perspective as me. You hear me? Yep. Okay, um, well, anyways, um, I was going to say earlier about what Gina was talking about. Um, so, like, back in the day, uh, one of my family members, I grew up Christian, one of my family members said that she was Buddhist. So, like, immediately, you know, I was just scared because, you know, ignorance is, when you don't know something, you're scared of it, right? So sure. I picked up a book, it's called The Religions of Mankind, and it was um, 100 pages on every religion. So I learned a lot about every religion and how they all kind of tie in. I mean, there's certain things that tie in to Christianity, absolutely. Um, and I was just curious of y'all's opinion on that. Let's take it away, Dina. What was the question? What do you think of uh, being afraid of something in the in the current when you hear about it, like she was afraid of uh, religion? Well, you know, I've, I've worked in the interfaith world for, for um, over 20 years. And so uh, I've come to understand about religions that I didn't know much about. And I think, um, you know, you're, you're born a Christian. You probably have many lifetimes as a Christian. And so that's, that's your comfort level. That's what you're comfortable with. And you probably didn't have much, much exposure to Buddhism, which I think a lot of people in the West, I think that's true. Um, I, I have found myself working with a lot of Buddhists because a lot of Buddhists are very active in the peace movement, and I've done a lot of peace dialogues. And uh, because Buddhism is a meditative religion, a very peaceful religion, 
I've had a lot of encounters with them, so I felt very comfortable with the um, with the Buddhists, um, and and I hadn't recognized my own personal relationship with Buddhism until I saw myself as living in uh, Tibet, where of course Buddhism is the main religion. But I think I think um, if we can acknowledge that we have been all races, we've been all religions at some point in time, maybe not recently, but at some point in time. I think then we can we can um, gain far greater acceptance, and I think that as a world community, enough to have, for, in order for us to have peace, we have to have great acceptance of all religions and all ethnicities, and realize that we're all in this life together. We may not fully understand another religion, but we can appreciate that there's a lot of common features about all the religions. Um, they all teach compassion and love and service. Um, uh, you know, they may have different languages. I've, I've had many discussions with Buddhists about the, what we call God, because I definitely believe in God, and the Buddhists claim that they don't, but I've realized it's a matter of language. They, they have another word for that. They don't, they don't um, conceive of that divine reality in the same way as like a, we do uh, in the West. But it, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in that cosmic reality, or that divine reality. So I found that, that language is often a problem when religions are trying to talk to each other. But if you get beyond that and can see that really we're talking about the same thing. Let's go to Louise in Louisville, Kentucky. You're going to hear an interesting story here. She lives. Hi, Louise. Yes, George. I am still very much alive. In the previous lifetime, I was Cleopatra, and Julius Caesar was uh, Muhammad Ali. And Julius Caesar, I had one son, and I, I call him a miscarriage after Julius Caesar was murdered, and I was on my way back to Alexander, I lost the second baby. With Mark Anthony, in this lifetime, he was Mark Anthony with the same name. I don't give his last name, but I had three children by him. But in this lifetime, both Muhammad Ali and Mark Anthony have had significant places in my life. I was Muhammad Ali's first girlfriend in this lifetime, and I was the first girl that he married. I mean, kissed, not married. He married <laughs> other women. You wanted him to marry you. No, I didn't because I I, I didn't want to marry a boxer. <laughs> but when I was in um, Chicago in Elijah Muhammad's house, Muhammad came to dinner and when he saw me, he was so happy to see me because he hadn't seen me in a long time. And he asked if I was married because that was when he wanted to get with me again. But I told him another person had been selected for me. But I've had an interesting life, and yeah. I loved it. Well, when you dated Muhammad Ali, was he Cassius Clay at the time or Muhammad Ali? He was Ali? Cassius Clay. See, we were only 13 and 14 years old. I was the first girl he invited to go to the movies to see King Kong. 13 years old? Too young to be kissed. My mother, he told me to ask, my, ask if I could go to the movies. My mother said, no, Wendell, I think you're too young to date. Okay, so, so what, what would your question be for Dina? Oh, uh, I just wanted her to know that, uh, you know, I love reincarnation. All right. 
Not really a question there, Dina, just an observation. Go ahead. An observation. A very interesting story. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Joe, Long Island, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. I have two questions for Dana. Second on psychology. The first question would be, you're talking, you meditate an hour a day. Uh, Do you, like, think it's easier to wait for an image to pop up in a meditation or to uh, incubate a dream, and how would you weight each in terms of uh, relative importance of the information through uh, each channel? My second question, would you were talking about people being unsettled by an angry person. I could see how that follows you through the day. That, that does seem to happen. But you think that people are stressed out now, and they uh, just let their behavior, like they throw caution to the wind. It's kind of similar to like someone in the Navy. They're on a ship all the time. They're on leave, and then they're, they don't keep their wits about them in terms of their behavior. So now you see people going out maybe buying marijuana and saying, okay, I had a bad day, and now I'll do this, that type of thing. Well, in terms of your first question, I think that there are two kinds of dreams. There is the subconscious dream, which doesn't really make sense. You know, a lot of things are going on. There's no connection, and you just don't understand it. And then there is a dream with a message, um, and there's greater clarity about those dreams. Uh, And I think I've learned to really pay attention to those dreams, um, and um, I, I... do they don't those kinds of dreams don't come up by often uh, but i've they've been um confirming for me of things that i've intuitively felt and then i'll suddenly have a dream that confirms it and so i i i've learned to distinguish between the subconscious dreams which is just a mixed mush of you know what was going on in the day or your fears or whatever uh, and um, those dreams that really have a clear message. And, and so it's just a matter of disc- discerning which, which, what the message is, you know, and paying attention to that dream. Uh, and and I, I think the images that come up when you're quiet, whether it's in prayer or meditation, are also very important. So I think that information comes through numerous ways, and it's a, just a matter of being attentive and sort of paying attention and not just letting it slip by, but um, paying attention and seeing what that, what the purpose is, what that dream is trying to tell you. And yes, there's a lot of insecurity on the planet now. A lot of people are stressed out and anxious, uh, you know, because things are changing so quickly. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, suddenly there could be a war one, you know, out of the blue. There it is. Yep. And and so that creates a lot of anxiety and. Uh, people have short fuses, but we have to work uh, toward um, diffusing that. And and I know that there are a lot of people who also are trying to work through their anxiety, through things like meditation, through yoga, through physical exercises, through going to the gym. I mean, there are lots of through jogging, through whatever it is for you. Uh, everybody has a different way of dealing with their stress and tension. And I think because it's like a almost like a matchbox now, we all have to be extra careful about diffusing our stress and tension and having a positive outlook. It's one of the reasons I'm writing a book about the future is to put out a positive vision out there. No, you know, we're not going to create a dystopian future for ourselves. 
we're going to solve these problems. We can only solve these problems if we do it together. And so we have to think positive and not allow ourselves to get depressed by what's going on in the world. I think that's one of the most important messages <laughs> is not allowing ourselves to get angry or depressed by what's going on because we have the ability to move into a better situation as a, as a community, as a country, individually, and, and as a world society. We have the power to move into a better situation. Let's go to Don in Alberta, Canada. Go ahead, Don. Hi, George. Hi, Dina. Hi. Um, I was looking up the word, looking up the word to chant. Uh, come across it a long time ago. It's actually huge. It's uh, you do it like a mantra, 10, 15, 20 minutes. It's H U U A C H. And if you want to Google it, it's under Past Lives, Dreams, and Soul Travel. And the author of the, I think the book it was in was Harold Clem. Anyway, my question is: is George had a guest on a long time ago, and um, <clears throat> they said, well, some people refer to Earth as a prison planet because we get tra trapped in the magnetic fields. And this one lady believed that there's a soul catcher on the backside of the planet. So I was trying to figure out why people come down here. But we, people that are running the planet right now, they use the humans, the reason we have wars and suffering all the time, is they're using the planet like a, a battery because like, they feed off human emotions. And I was just wondering. and. Um, and the other thing I was going to ask about is I think love's kind of overrated sometimes. It makes people do crazy things. Well, it sure does. So you want to react to that, Dina, before we wrap things up? Okay. Well, let me – can you just pose the question again? Basically, just, we're trapped down here because I was always trying to figure out – some people volunteer to come down to raise consciousness. Are our souls trapped here, down here, Dina? Souls trapped? Well, I think people come down here to help for sure. And, um, I mean, I think you're only trapped if you see yourself trapped, if you see yourself as being trapped, because we all have free will, and we all can get ourselves out of the trap, you know? I mean, we're, you know, trapped sort of by our past actions and all that, but I don't think anybody has control over us. I think that we, um, I mean, of course, if you're not a thoughtful person, you can allow yourself to be, you know, swayed. Uh, um, even even these cult leaders uh, get control people's minds. So it's true that there are people who can come under mind control if you're not a strong person. Um, and but, you, but you better be a strong person indeed. Dina, we're out of time. Thank you. You did a great job. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladisor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burrows, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie. Somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.